Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, we're in a series called Build, and we're talking about how Jesus builds his church. And Jesus, the Bible tells us, is building his church into a spiritual house for God's habitation. We learn this, that as a nation of priests, we are chosen for worship, we are commissioned for intercession, we are charismaed for ministry, that Christ followers, each and every one, are empowered by grace to serve so that all can grow and grow up. We've considered two weeks ago the five leading gifts from Ephesians chapter 4 by which the church is to be led. Last week from Romans chapter 12 and the first part of 1 Corinthians 12, we talked about each individual Christ follower and their grace DNA and how there is a catalytic gift, but there is also a a matrix for ministry of the gifting, of the assignment, and the activity. And today I want to come back and I want to bring all of this together and I want to talk about what it means for us to be empowered together. How do we labor together so that each one grows and matures in the body? And here's what I want you to see today, that God works to build the body as he promised, right? We don't build the body, he builds the body. But God works to build the body when Christ followers serve the body in unity. Well, in the first half of 1 Corinthians 12, we saw these spiritual gifts and this matrix for ministry for each individual Christ follower. But in the latter half, beginning in verse 12 through verse 31, Paul begins to emphasize the how. In other words, how these things work together and the importance of each member working together to accomplish God's purpose. You see, friends, what we believe about the unity in the body of Christ determines how we will relate to the body by our individual gifting. What we believe about the importance of the unity of the body of Christ will always determine how we relate to the body through our own individual gifting. And what I want to share with you today are simply three truths that teach us how it is that God builds the body as each Christ follower serves from their gifting. It's so easy for us to think at times that my service just doesn't matter that much. But if we think about the body in that way, then what we actually do is we deter unity among the body because we actually oppose in our thinking what God has said in his word. That each Christ follower serving among the body is critical and essential for the whole body to grow. And so these are the truths that we're going to look at today. And I hope and pray that you are greatly encouraged, exhorted, and edified through. The first truth I want to share with you today is found, we'll look in verses 12 through 21, but I just want to provide it for you first of all. It simply says this, that God designed the body as one, made of many members by his 
arrangement. Let's go to verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12. And you follow along as I read aloud. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. God designed the body as one, many uh, made up of many members and all by his arrangement. In this first truth, what we see here is that Paul begins by comparing the body of Christ to God's design of the human body. And, and he says this, that just as each individual part of the human body in operating together makes up the whole body, so diversity in the church operating as one actually makes it the church. And the way that the body functions by serving through their gifts for one purpose represents to us, first of all, the oneness of God by his triune nature. So the three persons of the Godhead operating all for one purpose, we see that throughout. And first of all, we represent the Trinity or the oneness of God in the Trinity. But second of all, the Holy Spirit makes unity the priority in the local church so that God's people can represent God. It's through our unity that we most reflect the oneness of our God. And so the unity of the body demonstrates the glory of our triune God who empowers and works by grace. When we work together, loaded question or loaded word there, right? Together. When we serve together, we most reflect the oneness, the glory of our God. And God is able to most work by his grace among us. You see, unity is essential to guide us. That's what Paul is laying down here because he says this, unity means that no one looks at the body and says this, I'm not important or I'm not valued because I'm not like you. Remember this, friends, we, we talked about this last week, but every Christ follower is called by the Lord into what? Into salvation. We are called by the Lord into the body so there's the importance of the local church for every Christ follower. And we are gifted by the Lord. And we'll find this, that it's both Jesus and the Holy Spirit who by sovereign choosing determine not only the gift, but the measure of that gift upon every individual Christ follower as well. So we are gifted by the Lord for the body. We are called by the Lord into the body. We are gifted by the Lord for the body. 
Romans 12, 3, Paul, last week we talked about it, reminds us, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. That's not just a general statement. It's an excellent general principle, right? But he says it in specific application to the way that we perceive ourselves among the body. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think with sober judgment, he says. And then he goes on to teach us how we should. He says this, that that God renews our thinking, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, in order to establish our identity, to establish our righteousness in Christ, And to establish the sufficiency of God's grace as our strength for whatever he calls us to. That's what he told us last week. Therefore, no one can look at others to measure themselves or even for their role for the body. A Christ follower's gifting always serves a unique place among the body of Christ. What if the right thumb said, I want to be a left thumb? Well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? But that's often what we find happening in the church. Because of this, because we understand that that no one can look at the body and say, I'm not important or I'm not valued because I'm not like you or I'm not like another one. Because we believe that we reject any form of spiritual elitism in the body. There are no super Christians in the local church, only a super savior. We reject any form of spiritual elitism because it always leads to one place, gift idolatry, where we worship the charisma, the gifting more than the God who is the giver of that gift. And friends, God is glorified when we honor his arrangement to live in unity among the body, valuing, accepting, and loving all for the role that God has given them to us as the body. But unity also means another thing. It means that no one looks at a part of the body and says, you're not important because you're not like me. So let's flip it around here. Unity is determined when one looks at others and, and, or excuse me, unity is undermined, not determined. There's a little difference in those two words, right? Unity is undermined when one looks at another's and said, I, I don't have any need of you. Your gifting, your role among the body serves me no good purpose. We need to remember this, that God arranged the members in the body. This is what the scripture says. Each one of them as he chose. If there is one among the body, they are important and valuable to us, each and every one. You see, when someone says, I don't need you, what they really say is, I'm not interested in what God has for me. Therefore, because of this, we reject not only spiritual elitism, but we reject spiritual egotism. Because it always leads to a false exaltation of individuals and a dependence on the outward demonstration more than faithful service of all. You see, God composes the body as he chooses so all members serve for the good of all. 
Now, Christ Father, I want to ask you something this morning. Have you ever used one of these excuses to justify remaining distant or even to rationalize why it's okay not to serve in the body? Surely most of us have or do. But friends, you are graced by God to live as one with each other together and to serve among the body. God designed the body as one, as one, made up of many members and all by his arrangement. That's the first truth that we want to see this morning. The second truth we will find as we continue in verse 22 and and moving forward. And what Paul does here is he immediately moves to an area that typically we prefer to avoid altogether. Weakness. The second truth I want you to see today is that God gives weak parts of the body for higher honor to keep us together. Weak parts of the body for higher honor to keep us together. Look with me in verse 21 and moving forward. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, he says, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Friends, the second truth is far more difficult than the first for us to tolerate, if you will, accept and in which to operate. That first truth challenges us because it often identifies an excuse that we offer to the church or to the Lord for why we shouldn't or why we don't have to serve or do not serve among the body. But this second truth that we see set forth here obliterates us because it gets to the underlying motivation so often in the way that we see not only the body but very often those in the body. And Paul confronts us pastorally with a very hard truth that weakness is not a part of the body to dispense with, but is rather indispensable for the body itself. And not only is it indispensable, but it is the place, the very point, where we're to intently show greater honor, so greater grace and greater glory can be revealed among the church. The church is called by God to highly value weakness in the way that we respond to it. In other words, the weak links of the chain, 
are the most precious among us because of what they provide to us and the opportunity for God to work in us. Friends, weakness is not something to ignore. Rather, weakness is something for us to surround through our serving in order to cover it with greater modesty or as the word modesty would be rightfully understood here, a gracious protection because we give it greater honor. In other words, the honor has been intentionally assigned to it in the way that we serve, in the way that we cover it with grace in order to honor it more highly. Now, I want to just take a moment here, as I think is very appropriate in the day and time in which we live, to give an application for this word modesty. Went to Walmart this week. Reminded me how important this really is. Went to the grocery store this week. It doesn't really matter where I went this week. Every week is a reminder of how important this is. I want you to understand what modesty is all about. Modesty is about bestowing greater honor on a part of the body, not just hiding ugly. I say this because some think, well, if I don't think it's ugly, or if it in fact isn't ugly, I don't need to be modest with it. No. The purpose of modesty is not to hide ugly. It's to bestow honor. And that's what we've lost in this day and time. We've stopped giving honor to the parts of the body that God has determined we should honor. And I think we need to recapture this. And maybe one of the greatest ways for us to do so is not just talking about the way we dress, but the way we relate to one another. Modesty is not about ugly. It's about honor, and it is still beneficial. It is always a higher glory. And that's what we are instructed in the way that we regard weakness or the weaker parts in the church. Even using the name weak, the label weaker, it just denotes something negative, does it not? But the word here in 1 Corinthians is not in any way inferring negativity towards weakness. You see that? So that's a very mindset because of our renewal by the transformation of God's grace that we've got to to, to disenfranchise, we've got to dislocate from our thinking and do away with it. Weakness is not negative. If it were, it would mean God was intentionally implanting negative into the church, and he's not. Friends, weakness among the body is not by accident nor happenstance, but by sovereign arrangement. That's what Paul is telling us here. God put it there for a purpose. And if he put it there for a purpose, he's going to bring glory from it. And if he brings glory from it, there is nothing negative about it. You may not see it this way to begin with, or you may always see weak as as something that you ever should only do away with. Either way, the way that we think about weakness 
does not change our response for how we are to respond to it in the church. You see, weakness is not less valuable to the church than the greatest strengths among the body. As a matter of fact, it's more valuable, as Paul is saying that here, because we are to bestow a higher honor upon it. God gives weakness to the church for this reason, to unite us, to unite us through serving as our grace expands to the care we give to that weakness. Now, if to show greater honor to that weakness, then we need to understand what is weakness or dare I tread into this area? Who are the weak ones? Uh Uh-oh. All right, every head bowed and every eye closed. We can close it right here. Shut it down. Let's not talk about this. We may be a bit surprised to really consider weakness as Paul is teaching us here. First of all, I want to be clear about weakness. We're not talking about sin. Weakness is not sin, nor is it sinfulness. Okay? That is not what weakness is all about. It can and it often does become a pathway to sin, especially when we strive to hide it, when we strive to ignore it, or when we intentionally run from it in our own life. We see it and and we're never more critical of others than we are when we see weakness in ourselves, And that often drives us into sin. But just because one is weak does not mean they've sinned, nor does it mean they are in sin. Weakness, friends, cannot be overcome by repentance because it is not sin. But weakness, hear me, this is the beautiful part of it. Weakness is covered over with grace in order to demonstrate God's all-sufficiency towards us through the body. That's what modesty is all about. It's about covering the parts in order to bestow greater honor on them so that greater grace can be supplied, not only in that instance, but throughout the whole. I'm going to tell you a story. Personally, I've never liked being weak. And mostly, I do everything within my absolute power, ability, or otherwise to hide it and to get rid of it as quickly as I can. But for whatever reason, the cootie shot doesn't work against the cootie of weakness in my life too often. My story today tells a time when I was the weak one and it cost everyone around me. There was a small group of us, five as a matter of fact, that had planned an excursion to backpack the maroon bells about two and a half years ago in Colorado. The maroon bells is a very famous loop, 26 miles through the mountain and four 12,000 foot passes. In other words, you climb and you cross 12,000, 12,002, 12,004. You do that four times in the 26 mile loop. So for months, I mean months, and if you ask my wife, dollars and dollars and dollars worth of supplies and equipment were purchased. My son and I were two of the five. We, we, we bought supplies and equipment. We took smaller excursions to prepare, and we set out on our five-day and four-night trip. 
The first day we hiked in about six and a half miles and set up camp at around 11,000 feet. And if you know anything, it's just beyond that where altitude really begins to most take its effect. And I had never had trouble with altitude in the past that I could remember. We camped there that night. It was a phenomenal first day. And while I had some pains and, and, and aches, that's fairly typical for me in physical exertion. And so I didn't think much about it. The next morning we got up and we began to hike. And we knew we had a, a, a good little hike to that first pass. It turned out to be about three miles and about two and a half miles into it. I came to a painful realization, I'm not going to make it. This isn't going to happen. I was retaining water from the altitude. My knees were already overburdened. I'll just leave it at that. And I, I wasn't going to, this wasn't just a hurt. This was a lane. You're going to die on this mountain. That's what you're going to do. And, and there wasn't any giggling in me because all I could think was, Lane, there's four other men here who have waited as long as you've waited, planned as much as you have, and probably a little more than because you should have planned a little more. And if you bow, what are they going to do? So I began to tell our leader, our guide, so to speak, uh, on the trip. I said, man, I, I'm not going to make it. He said, well, just take a rest. Take a rest. Okay, I took a rest didn't help he said let me take some of your weight so he pulls out some of my weight the food and he's carrying it like this with his backpack you want to carry me too maybe I, you know I mean by this point I'm feeling like a total idiot and I mean I, I'm just every step my body says if you cross that path pass you have three more to do in four days you are never going to make it so I went to him and I said, here's what I want to do. I want to give you some of the food that I have in my pack for my son. I want to send him on with you. He was fine. He's all bouncing off the mountains and doing all kinds of stuff. I said, I want him to go ahead with you because I, I want him to finish the loop. And I, I, don't want to be, uh, I don't want to deter you guys. I'm going to hike out tonight. I'll, I'll pick up the van and I'll pick you guys up in three days. And he said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay together, whatever we do. Now, weakness made me feel lower than dirt. I don't like that plan. Let's go with the other plan. I'll feel better if y'all go on. And so I finally, after a couple of times, I realized, and I mean, I can see the first pass that we're headed towards. It's right there. It's probably within a quarter of a mile at this point. And all of my body is saying is, do not go there. Do not go there. And I finally said, I'm not going to make it. I've got to go back. And I turned to my son, who had come back from bouncing off the rocks at this point. And I said, Joshua, I can't go any further, son. I'm going to give you the supplies that you need, some for your backpack, and we'll split them up with the others if we need to. But I want you to go on. You can finish this. I'll see you in a few days. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, I, I didn't come out here just to hike. I came out of here to be with you. Oh, weakness destroyed in the moment. I mean, my weakness not only had stripped four other people potentially of the enjoyment of that, but then also there's this, there's this relational thing that took place. It was just tearing me apart. And so we decided we would go ahead and get to the pass 
those who were with us, and, and we would all get there. I did get to the first pass. I made it. And then we turned around, and all five of us hiked out that night. And for nine and a half miles, I hiked 12 and a half miles that day. For nine and a half miles and hours upon hours, I had one thought in my mind. No, it was a lot deeper than my mind. It was in my gut. You are the reason that they're all coming out. Two and a half years ago that happened. And it may sound like a nice story to you. It was a life-changing moment for me. To know that they came out with me. They didn't need to. I would have been fine coming out on my own. I came out better than I went in. Probably because I knew it was coming to the end. I was not only weak in that moment. I was the weakness. The weakness. There are some people who don't mind being around weakness. But I don't know of anyone that enjoys being the weakness. Weakness reminds us of everything we'd rather forget or ignore. It arouses in us a, a latent lack of love and patience when we encounter it. It appears at the most inopportune moments to, to reveal with a painful magnification and a painful amplification of our own shortcomings. Weakness screams at us insufficiency and ineptitude. But Paul says that weakness holds a far more glorious purpose in the body of Christ. Because among the body, those parts that seem weaker are indispensable and invaluable. It's funny. When you are the weakness, you don't feel indispensable. And you don't feel invaluable unless, unless you are covered with grace that serves you in that weakness. An inconvenient and discomforting truth holds most true for the body of Christ here. Weakness is as much a part of God's chosen design for the body as strength. Weakness among the body highlights the greatness and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, God puts people around us that need service, that have little or no personal benefit immediately, specifically to us. So we can learn a deeper understanding of gospel love that gives of itself freely with no promise of return. And sometimes God reveals and even exposes our weakness around others whom we have nothing to offer so that we can learn the same. In moments when weakness is exposed, God equips the body to rise up and to show greater honor. 
Friends, weakness provides the most powerful lessons for us and the greatest challenge to us. For the body regards the weakest with a greater honor to serve them faithfully, believing this, that God's grace is sufficient to bring the highest glory from that weakness. And after all, our greatest lessons do come, do they not, when we become one of the weak. God arranges the body for glory at times to demonstrate strong gifting and at other times greater honor. Friends, that's a beautiful understanding of the gospel. But when we hide our weakness, we say, God, you didn't know what you were doing when you arranged us this way. When we avoid our weakness, we say, God, you can't deal with what we've got. When we ignore or neglect our weakness, we say, God, we're not interested because we don't want the inconvenience or the embarrassment of giving special attention or effort to serve the weaker members. Nobody likes to be weak. But in the body of Christ, we are all weak at some point. Or we are all running from it. And the way that the church responds to weakness through serving demonstrates among us and from us the potency of God's grace in us and the extent to which we believe that his grace is in fact sufficient for all weakness. And Paul ends this section with one prevailing principle of unity. We suffer and we rejoice together. The way we serve one another honors Jesus. God gives weakness among the body to bring unity through the way we care as we serve one another. The third truth that I want us to see today is that God's grace builds as each Christ follower serves from their gifts or gift for all to grow and mature. Look at verse 27 in 1 Corinthians 12. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. In this third truth, what Paul dares to do is to bring not an explanation of the individual gifts that he identifies, but rather to bring to light how God is working through each of those gifts to grow and mature each one. You see, gifts that are put into service activate God's grace to work among the body, and it is God's grace that builds the body in both growth 
and maturity. He's not teaching about the specific roles in the church or explaining these gifts here. He's teaching how the operation of the body grows and matures the body. The more a Christ follower serves from their gifting, the more grace that they infuse into the body. And the more grace that is infused among the body, the greater Jesus through the gospel becomes for people. And the greater Jesus through the gospel becomes for people, the more of God's saving power transforms in those people. Every Christ follower serves by their gifting so each person in the body can be transformed by grace. This is how Jesus builds his church. You see, as the church advances by those leading gifts that we talked about, and as each Christ follower serves from their grace DNA through their matrix of ministry, then the body serves one another, and in that serving, they both grow and they mature. God is the one who prioritizes his gifts for the church when he wants them, when he needs them, and the way he wants to use them. But every gift is is given by God and brings him honor and glory through its service. But hear me, Paul's saying this, not all gifts hold the same priority. Friends, do not anchor yourself to a gift that God gives to you. Anchor yourself to the giver of that gift and let him use it as he determines in you. Because God places higher priority on some gifts, not to give them value and honor, but to utilize them at specific times and strategic ways among the body. He wants each member of the body to grow from where they are toward the higher gifts for the sake of the body. And here's what I'll tell you. The higher gifts always include you implementing them in such a way that touches more people in their practice. You see, Christians grow in their new identity in Christ as we strive towards the gifts that bring greater growth to the body. I talked last week, I just briefly talked about this idea of Christian growth and maturity and and, uh, referenced the distinction between the two. And I think it's important for us because if we want to know how God grows and matures the body and what he's expecting from us, then it's important for us to understand the distinction between these. And that's Paul's whole point here is we want you to desire the higher gifts. In other words, seek to excel in your own gifting and giftedness. You see, growth is the fun, the exhilaration of advancement when we learn and find what we can accomplish and the new things that we are able to do. It comes from that increase in learning and the advancement in ability. That's part of why people love to study uh, um, uh, spiritual gifts. They get to learn what their gift is. They learn more about themselves. They, they learn their grace DNA. And it's exciting as you discover that gift and as you begin to practice it. But friends, real growth is when we see the gospel reality begin to take root and to bear fruit in our life. And that's what those gifts do. When you know what the gifts are and you put them into service and you begin to see fruit come from your service. That's growth. But maturity, though it comes through growth is very distinct from growth. You see, maturity comes as we immerse our lives more deeply, not just into understanding ourselves, but into serving others in that matrix of ministry in order to serve. And while growth has excitement, maturity is seldom exciting. Let's just be honest. 
How many of you jumped for joy when all the bills coming in the mail had your name on them, right? Typically, maturity comes through frustration and failure as you learn your weaknesses and your vulnerabilities, as you are brought face to face with your limits and your limitations. Maturity comes when we refuse to blame others, but we reflect to understand for insight into the how and the why and the when of this place that we found ourselves in our giftings and our serving, our limits and our limitations. How how am I limited in this role or why am I limited? Why am I weak in this place? Why am I vulnerable in this place? And when does that most arise? Now maturity is beginning to come forth from growth. In maturity, we learn about self, but we never learn for self. And we learn typically by confronting what is within us that makes serving difficult to us. Challenges and tests and trials, James says. Consider it pure joy. Why does he tell us that? Because that's the last thing we want to do when we encounter trials of various kinds. Through these things, maturity brings wisdom that makes our gifting more effective in its application and rewarding in its expression. Listen to me in this comparison, friends. Growth rides on strength that excels. And we all like to talk about our strengths. Maturity demands the faith to rest in who God created us to be. Growth produces excitement. Maturity deepens our joy in Jesus. Growth brings satisfaction to us. Maturity impulses a calm assurance in us. Growth searches until it can explain. Maturity learns to intercede in order to be able to trust and continue on as we proceed by faith. Growth strengthens our grip of the gospel. Maturity strengthens the gospel's grip on us. Growth motivates us to run harder after Jesus. Maturity makes us more like Jesus. Growth is costly. Maturity is invaluable. Everybody wants to grow. Most fight growing up. My grandfather once told me, Lane, you're only young once, but you can be immature forever. We chuckled, and then he stopped before I did. Point made, Papa. And I'll close with this. What good are we to one another until we mature? Well, I'll tell you. The process of each one growing and maturing tells every other person that not only are you accepted and loved, but you are valued and appreciated among us. And when your limits and your limitations outshine your abilities and your giftings, you are no less loved and accepted. We know those are the moments when God is doing his best work in us and doing his best work among us. We give greater love to you to strengthen and remind you of what has always been. And 
we learn a little bit more about what it means, as Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Friends, every time a Christian grows in body, God's love expands us in our reach and in our influence. And every time a Christian matures in the body, God's love strengthens as it penetrates to undergird and to transform us. The process of Christian growth and maturity is God building little stones into a spiritual house that God can inhabit and that he does. God works to build the body when Christ followers serve the body in unity.